0: So why does a dog return to its vomit and a fool to their folly? Here are some people who apparently did that on TripAdvisor. Same mistake twice, says a reviewer of a restaurant in Newport, Oregon. I made the mistake of eating here a second time. My six friends and I all ordered burgers. They tasted good going down, but all six of us spent the entire night in the bathroom. That does seem to be a literal example of that proverb we heard earlier. They're not alone. I came back here for lunch even though I didn't enjoy my last meal here, says one unfortunate diner whose salad at a restaurant in Bunbury, Australia, came not just sprinkled but disappointingly deluged in salad dressing. Then there is the person who reviewed the Sistine Chapel. Again, the review is entitled, Same Mistake Twice. I felt harried and rushed the first time around. Sure, I could glance at the magnificence of the final judgment or the creation, but not for long before someone inevitably bumped me or distracted me. Really disappointing. I've advised many people not to visit. Often I've heard back words to the effect, we should have listened to you. In a moment of great weakness, I agreed to accompany some newcomers to Rome on a visit, despite my previous experience, and so I returned in 2004. Terrible mistake, Never again. Well, here's the question then to these TripAdvisor reviewers Were you not able to learn from your mistakes the first time? Psychologists have noted that it's not just in trivial things like TripAdvisor reviews that human beings seem unable to learn from past mistakes. There seems to be a mistake pathway in the brain. Paradoxically, the more you dwell on your past errors, the more likely you are to repeat them in future because. Error distracts your brain. So a basketball player who misses a few baskets is probably better off stopping and trying again another day than just standing there and trying over and over again. And it may also explain why, I don't know if this happens to you, if you forget somebody's name, you're more likely to forget it again in the future, even once you've been reminded of it. Because your brain gets distracted by the memory of forgetting I wonder if you find that. But if we find this frustrating when we're dealing with relatively trivial things like that, how much more is it frustrating when we're dealing with serious, repeated error or failure or sin in our lives? So I wonder what you made of this reading that we just heard. If you've been here through the previous part of this series looking at the life of Abraham, then this just might ring a bell. Because back in chapter 12, we read of Abraham and Sarah going down to Egypt because of a famine, and Abraham fears that the Egyptians will kill him. So he hatches a plan, which is to tell a half-truth about his half-sister, who is also his wife, we discover here in chapter 20. Let's focus on the sister part of that, he says, and leave out the marriage part. Now, it's a slightly bizarre story, and superficially, at least, it's the same kind of story that we have here in chapter 20, with more, a few more details. In chapter 12, he was rebuked by Pharaoh himself and kicked out of Egypt in disgrace, <clears throat> and now something very similar happens again. Well, what, what, what then is going on? Well, some people read this and say, well, obviously, this is just the same event, and the narrator has got confused or has decided for whatever reason to tell the same story twice with Uh, different antagonists but actually that misses something fundamental about human beings, which is just as true of us as it was of faithful but flawed Abraham and that is this that the sins that we struggle with the most are the sins of habit the sins that recur it's my temper somebody might say I never wake up thinking I'm going to lose my temper today. In fact, sometimes it's positively the opposite. And I head into a situation thinking, I need to try really hard not to lose my temper. And yet, she knows exactly what buttons to press and how to wind me up. And yet again, despite all my vows and promises and best intentions, I lose my temper. It feels impossible to do anything different. If it's not our temper, maybe it's the resolution to drink less or to give up altogether because of the effect it's having on us. Maybe it's simply to get up earlier to pray and read the Bible, to fight late-night temptation on the telly or on the internet, or not to chicken out of opportunities to speak about Jesus with a colleague or a neighbour. You know, we always have the best of intentions, but to our horror, we find but it's not enough. So, can God really forgive? Can he use people who are like this? Surely it would be better just to give up, we tell ourselves. Well, Abraham faced similar issues. How could he be so foolish again to try and fool another king about his marital status because he fears for his life? Has he learned nothing about the God who made these extraordinary promises to him? who's committed himself to him in covenant, who last week we saw has demonstrated both his justice and his mercy. This is not a God we can mess with, but this is a God we can trust. And Abraham is held up in the New Testament as the great model of faith. Yet here he is facing a test of recurrent sin and failure. Now, this is the final fall of Abraham that is recorded. There is one more test, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks, the ultimate test for Abraham. But all through the life of Abraham, the one constant has not been Abraham's faith. That's been all over the place. The one constant has been the grace of God and the commitment of God to keeping the promise that he made. Abraham's been on a massive journey, quite literally, since chapter 12. And the big burning question as we head towards the latter part of Abraham's life is will God finally keep his promises to Abraham after such a delay? Abraham has one more lesson to learn on this journey of faith before he faces the ultimate test. He needs to see again that God gives grace to and through those who don't deserve it. That God's people are not made up of the proud and the sorted, but God includes the humbled and he uses the humiliated. There is grace even for the habitual sinner. So let's see that then. You can see in the headings on the sheet, first of all, grace to Abimelech. Grace to Abimelech, verses 1 to 7. This Abimelech is king of Gerar. Gerar was outside of Canaan in the direction of Egypt, but not quite as far as that, but very much a pagan place like Egypt, with a pagan king who does not know God. Now, of course, pagan When we say pagan, we mean in the sense of worshipping idols. Don't think of Stonehenge or Druids or things like that. Pagan means not worshipping the true God. And although this episode is very similar to chapter 12, the focus is slightly different. Verses 1 and 2, Assume that we remember why Abraham wanted to say Sarah was just his sister. She's a very beautiful lady, we heard in chapter 12. Even in her advanced years, She seems to have this sort of mesmeric effect on on everybody who who comes across her. And so he thinks that they're going to kill him. And so he hatches this plan. But now in verse 3, we get a new aspect to what happens that was absent in chapter 12. We find out how the king learns the situation that he's inadvertently found himself in. God appears to him in a dream. You are as good as dead. He says, she's married. And Abimelech's response might remind you of something if you were here last time, or you can catch up online. As we saw Abraham pleading with God and interceding in the face of the coming judgments on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What does King Abimelech sound like as he says this? Do you see that in verse uh, verse four? He sounds like Abraham praying to God, doesn't it? in chapter 18. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing. He's appealing, like Abraham did, to God's character. My conscience is clear. And God says, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, so I've kept you from sinning her. I've kept you from sinning against her, which is why I did not let you touch her. And you can imagine there's a bit of a light bulb moment for Abimelech. Oh, see, that's what's been going on. What is going on here is that God is showing grace to Abimelech. Grace that comes in a warning, a confrontation. We, we saw this last time, that it's loving for God to warn that disaster is coming, like warning children playing in the road that they're going to get run over. That's what God is doing here with Abimelech. Not just sentencing him to death straight away, but warning him as he does with us in our sin. But you might say, well, why single out Abimelech and give him a chance and even, verse 6, actually prevent him from sinning? Verse 6 tells us he has the power to prevent people from sinning. So why does he do that with some people and not with others? Well, the answer cannot be that there is something different about Abimelech. He's not better, he's not more holy, he's not more righteous in some way the answer is that it's grace it's god's grace his free gift this is not what abimelech deserves it's not what abraham deserves when he receives grace either and it's not what we deserve but god is a god of grace showing grace to those who don't deserve it so think of abraham the big question for him can god keep his promise of a child with abraham aged 100 and sarah aged 90 uh, uh, aged 90? he is the all powerful God of grace, even to the undeserving outsider, like Abimelech. So if he's like that to Abimelech, he can be like that to Abraham, and he can be like that to us. But there's more for Abraham to learn, first of all. So secondly then, but, uh, verses 8 to 16, grace through Abimelech to Abraham. Grace through Abimelech to Abraham. God's confronted Abimelech in his grace, and now Abimelech confronts Abraham. The conversation has a similar structure to that first confrontation of verses 1 to 7. First, the accusation is brought, look at what you've done, Abraham. You've done these things to me that should not be done. Then the response from Abraham, which is a whole lot less convincing than Abimelech was to God. Verse 11, what does Abraham say? He says, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. She is his sister, we discover, his half-sister. This this has been a convenient half-truth or half-lie, depending on how you look at it. And God caused me, God caused me to wonder." What does this sound like? It sounds like how Adam responded to God in the Garden of Eden. This woman that you gave me, it's her fault. It's your fault, God. It's anyone's fault but mine. And what do you make of that statement? There is surely no fear of God in this place. On the surface of things, it's what you would assume about pagan Gerar. But actually, what it reveals is that Abraham is the one Who is exhibiting no fear of God in the sense of respecting Him, trusting Him? It's Abraham who's not fearing God. Because what did God promise Abraham right back at the beginning in chapter 12? He told him, Whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. What then can Abraham expect as he goes into unknown situations with unknown foreign kings? He can expect God's protection. But fear of people gets the better of him and he opts for self-protection. Does that feel familiar at all? The times when we know we ought to trust God but opt instead for doing it our way. Maybe there's a situation with health or work or children which is essentially out of our hands, which means it's in God's hands, of course, not in ours. But our response to that is to spend hours and hours googling every possible outcome, not because we can really make any difference, but because we crave control. We can't let go. We fear that God can't be trusted. And so even though our efforts are unlikely to come to anything, what what have we got to lose by trying, we think? The American preacher John Piper was diagnosed with cancer in 2006. And he wrote a deeply challenging article entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And he made a number of points, but this was one. He said, you will waste your cancer if you spend too much time reading about cancer and not enough time reading about God. And we can apply that to any of the situations we find ourselves in that feel out of control. The thing is, most of us are more like Abraham. He was committed to the principle of trusting God, and we may well be too. You know, in theory, I know that's exactly what I want to be doing. But in practice, his besetting sin that he struggled with over and over was not the principle of trusting God in general. What he struggled was was the principle of trusting God right here, right now, with this particular set of circumstances Today. But you see what Abraham receives in response through Abimelech, despite his struggles, despite his sin? Well, Abimelech understands that promise that was made to Abraham I will bless those who bless you. So he blesses Abraham with grace that he certainly does not deserve. Verse 14, look at that, it's it's not even like Pharaoh with his staccato, original language, four-word dismissal. Back in Genesis chapter 12, Pharaoh said, here, wife, take, go. He wasn't having any of it. With Abimelech, it's here are some sheep, here are some cattle, here are some slaves, here's some land, live wherever you like, here's a thousand shekels of silver. Do you know the law of Moses required 50 shekels of silver, to be paid to a family and to a woman in the case of rape. The most severe of crimes. But you see what's going on here? This is grace that goes far beyond the law, a thousand shekels, for a crime that falls far short of rape. And then verse 16 This is to cover the offence against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. What kind of language is this? What does this sound like? Well, this is gospel language. This is the kind of language you'd expect to hear from God himself. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is what? Whose sin is covered. And vindication is, is elsewhere, something only God does. He's the one who declares us not guilty in his sight. So do you see what's going on here? This is grace from a most unlikely place, pagan king Abimelech, to a most undeserving person, Abraham, who's messed up. So in the face of our own habitual sins where we've repeatedly failed to trust God, This is the grace that we need too. So that's grace through Abimelech to Abraham. Then finally, verses 17 and 18, grace through Abraham back to Abimelech. Grace through Abraham to Abimelech. Now just remember again, what has been happening in Abraham's life through these chapters? What has he been waiting for? For years. Literally years. As Sarah got older, and older, and even less likely to have children, to the point where when they're told, you know, is going to have a child, what do they respond with? Laughter, because it's so utterly ridiculous that this could possibly happen now, after all this time. God had made this promise, but nothing had yet come of it. Think of all the praying that would have gone on over those years. Lord, you have promised a child. Lord, you have promised a child from my own loins. Lord, you have promised a child through my wife Sarah. Each month, each year. Lord, please keep your promise. Months and years go by. Please keep your promise. But nothing. Verse 17. Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech his wife and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb. Do you see, one prayer is all it took for grace to come through, Abimelech, through Abraham to Abimelech. Maybe there's a friend, a family member, and you've been praying for them for years and years to come to know Jesus. Year in, year out, praying, but nothing, Apparently. Then you meet another Christian and you hear how they'd never given much thought to a particular non-Christian friend, but one day they thought it wise to pray for them and invite them to events at church and that person there and then came to faith in Jesus and has been going strong ever since. And you think, am I doing something wrong? Do I not have enough faith? Am I sort of using the wrong words when I pray? What's the difference? What Abraham will tell us, what matters when we pray is not our Goodness, or using precisely the right words, or really, 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 just really, really meaning it. What matters is God's will. He knows what is best, and He will do what He knows is best, and He will do it in His timing. And prayer is saying to God, Your will be done. God's will with Abraham and Sarah was to bring them on this extraordinary journey of faith before he would answer their prayer. It's not that he couldn't open her womb. He is the one who opens wombs. He is the giver of life. He is the one who answers prayer. But on his timing and not on ours. It's all a gift. And the essence of faith is learning that he's in charge, that he's all-powerful, but that he is also all-good. And we can trust him. So when we hear of God blessing others, when he doesn't appear to have blessed us in the same way, well, instead of grumbling and complaining, we can praise him, because did that person to whom he's shown grace deserve it? No. So praise God that he shows grace to those who don't deserve it. And we can say, well, he's done it for my friend. He's done it for me in sending Jesus to die for me. So I can trust him with this particular situation as I continue to wait. His will will be done. And he is a God of grace. So this chapter says this to Abraham. It says, if God's grace can come to and through Abimelech, the pagan king, and if God's grace can come through Abraham to Abimelech, Will God's grace not in the end also come to Abraham and Sarah? We'll glance forward to verse 1 of the next chapter and you will see that that is the case. For Christians today as New Testament believers, Paul puts it like this in the reading that we heard from Romans. Romans chapter 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things he's shown his grace to abimelech he can show grace to abraham and he can show grace to us he sent jesus to die for us he's done the hard thing he's not going to fail to get us to the finish line ready for eternity Maybe the psychologists are right when they say that focusing exclusively on our errors, on our repeated sins, makes us doomed to repeat them. Focusing only on our sin, only on our besetting sin, will have exactly the same effect. In the face of our failures, our repeated failures, what we need is a bigger, deeper, richer grasp of the grace of God. So take heart from the life of Abraham. God doesn't wait for us to get our lives together before he shows us grace and mercy. What does this say to someone who's not yet trusting in Jesus? Well, often, people, often we think that the, the, the real question is getting our heads around whether we can take the Bible seriously. Or whether the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus are historically plausible events. And that's what we pour our, all our efforts into with our non-Christian friends. And that's important and we, you know, we need to do that. But the real fundamental question for someone who's not trusting in Jesus is whether you're willing to realise that it's not up to us to smarten up and nail down every answer to every question. Because we don't do that with anything else in life. The fundamental question is whether we're prepared to be humble and be humbled before God to say we can't figure him out by ourselves we can't get to him by ourselves we need his mercy we need his grace and that's what he offers us in Christ he doesn't choose the proud and the sorted but he includes the humbled and he uses the humiliated Abraham was greatly humbled by God and yet he was greatly used by God And the key for Abraham was learning to trust in God as a God of grace. And he's still that God today. So trust him. Let's have a moment of quiet now to reflect on what that means for us in our lives. And then we'll pray. Father, we're sorry for when we think that your grace must somehow be earned, somehow deserved, so that we become either proud when we receive grace for ourselves or we become jealous when we see it in others. Father, you are a God of grace for the undeserving. So may we Humble ourselves before you so that you may lift us up with your grace. May we see where in our lives we're clinging on to things that we insist must be done our way. May we see what it means to say to you, Your will be done, to trust in you, to be a God of grace in unexpected ways thank you that it's true that as you did not spare your own son how will you not also along with him graciously give us all things we praise you for that wonderful truth that we can trust you in the face of all we struggle with now knowing that you are working in us to make us more like jesus through every difficulty we face every trial every challenge every day May we be content to rest in you and in the promises you have made that are fulfilled in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.